Well, good morning, everyone. Let's begin by reading our text this morning in its context. We're in Matthew chapter 19. We're going to focus on verses 16 to 22 this morning, but let's start reading at verse 13. Matthew chapter 19, starting at verse 13. Then children were brought to him, that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Well, this text challenges our understanding in many ways. For starters, it challenged the disciples. They thought, if this rich man, if if this rich man can't be saved, who can be? And wealth is seen, you know, at least in, in that culture, wealth was seen as a blessing from God. So that if one was wealthy, it was because they were they were pleasing God. And God would reward them with wealth. But Jesus shocks his disciples by saying riches actually make entering heaven difficult. Verse 23 tells us it's difficult. Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 24 actually moves it into the realm of impossibility. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And verse 26 confirms this idea of impossibility. Jesus looked at them and said to them, what is, with with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. See, camels don't fit through the eye of needles. But even that is easier than it is to get a rich man through the narrow gate and into the kingdom. It is impossible. But thankfully, God can do 
the impossible. And the, the disciples were greatly astonished. And I think we should be too. You know, think about this for yourself. Do you see wealth as something which hinders somebody from salvation? Do you see wealth as something that hinders somebody from salvation? Jesus does. And that's, that's going to challenge us as we look at this over the next few weeks. Another challenge here for us is tied to what the, we saw last week. Remember we saw that, that to such belongs the kingdom, to such like children the kingdom of heaven belongs, but the rich man, he's not going to enter the kingdom. He is not such. He is excluded. This righteous, wealthy man is not saved, and he's, he's exactly what the disciples wanted. This is, this is what they were looking for. They wanted to welcome this guy, and they wanted this, this guy to serve with, with them. And they were greatly astonished when Jesus seems to turn them away. On the other hand, they were all too eager themselves to send the children away. And so once again, this is going to challenge us that, and show us that we need to change our expectations in regard to the kingdom. This rich ruler seems to be a great prospect for the kingdom of heaven, but Jesus shows us it isn't as it seems. In fact, the children were a better prospect than this rich young ruler. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 as we kind of begin to think about this text here. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting at verse 26. Paul put it this way. He says, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. We've also seen a very similar kind of thing already in Matthew. Turn over to Matthew chapter 11 and verse 25. Matthew eleven twenty-five. at that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. There's our little children again. Revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. The gracious will of God is to keep these things. And we, we ask then, well, what things? Well, the way of salvation, the knowledge of who Jesus Christ is, those things are hidden from the wise and the understanding, and they've been revealed to the unwise and the ununderstanding. They've been revealed to little children. That was God's gracious will. And so God chose the weak and the lowly and the despised, and we need to understand that. And it challenges our perspective. It's going to challenge our perspective as we think about the kingdom. Now, another challenge in our text includes the way that we do evangelism, how we share the gospel with the world around us. And what Jesus does here is, is not what most of us would do if we were asked again in verse 16, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? 
You know, how would you answer that question? What good deed must I do to have eternal life? Let's say somebody comes and and asks you that question. Let's say it's an unbeliever or a, a religious person who tried to keep the law. How do you answer that question? What good deed must I do to have eternal life? Notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, pray this prayer after me, right? He doesn't say, well, just ask me into your heart. And he doesn't even say what I think we would maybe say is, he doesn't even say repent and believe the gospel. I think that's very interesting as we think about our evangelism. It's very interesting. You know, we might say this, we might say something along these lines, there's nothing that you can do. You need to stop trying to save yourself by your own works and efforts and believe on and trust in what Christ has done. And and I think that's good as far as it goes, but that's not Jesus' approach in this case. In fact, I honestly wonder, and and I've been thinking about this a lot this week, I honestly wonder whether this young man would end up leaving sad if he came and talked to one of us. If, if he came and asked us this same question and we had an interaction with him, I, I honestly wonder if he would walk away sad knowing that he's not part of the kingdom of heaven. You know, seriously, think about this. I, I think there's something wrong with our evangelism. Compare our evangelism with Jesus's in the three exchanges in our text and I think we'll see that there's something very different. I think we can think about it in kind of three phases here. There's the beginning of, of the interaction. There's the, the middle where Jesus takes him to the law. And then there's the end where, it, where Jesus shows him what, it, what it's really going to take is for him to give up everything and follow Christ. And I think if we kind of do this for ourselves, I think we start in the wrong place by not showing the person the goodness and greatness of God. And I think in the middle, we soften God's holy standard in the middle, and then we lessen what it really means to follow Jesus Christ at the end. Jesus began by pointing him to God as the ultimate good. All good comes from God. God is the fountain of good. He is the source of all that is good. And then Jesus took him to the law. And we're going to have to wrestle with this. I'm not going to do it now, but I'm just kind of introducing this. Jesus takes him to the law, and he actually says in verse 17, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. Jesus doesn't remove the law. It's still God's holy standard. We've seen this already when Jesus said in Matthew 5 and verse 20, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus has no problem harmonizing salvation by grace through faith with obedience. He has no problem saying, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. But that's not even the end. In the end, Jesus calls this guy to sell everything and come follow me. See, Jesus demands everything. Jesus isn't messing around is is how maybe we would say it or how I would say it. Jesus isn't messing around and discipleship is a radical commitment to following Jesus Christ. Now, I want to take you to a parallel passage this morning that that actually ends up applying to everyone. See, what, what our text is, is it's directed at the rich young ruler, as we call him, the rich young man. 
But let's go to a parallel passage in Luke that, that applies to all of us. And so let's go over to Luke 14. And let's start, I just want to read for you verse 33. Luke 14, 33. So therefore, this is Jesus speaking, so therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. See, I don't think that we get this the way that we ought to. Jesus demands a wholehearted pursuit of himself and his ways. And if we won't have him on those terms, he won't have us as his disciples. Again, in verse 33, So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, what does Jesus mean in this context by saying renounce all that he has? Well, look up starting at verse 25. It says there, Now great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and said to them, here's Jesus again, he, he turns away the crowd, he, he turns away the rich young man, he turns away the crowd. And so these great crowds are following him and he turns and he, and he sends them away and he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple." Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. What a message that is. Hate your parents. Hate your wife. Hate your children. Hate your own life. Yes, even your own life. And if you don't do that, you cannot, notice that word, you cannot, you are not able to be my disciple. Now the contextualizers are going to come, and, and maybe rightly so, but they're going to come and they're going to tell us that hate here means that it means love's less, or they're going to tell us that hate is contrasted with love in other passages, and, and that's true. You know, again, Matthew six twenty four, Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, and so love and hate are kind of on opposite ends of the spectrum. When I love one master and I serve him, I don't serve the other master, therefore I don't love the other master, therefore on the other side I hate him. Jesus calls his disciples to so cater themselves to his will and his purposes that we almost seem to hate everyone else, even ourselves, even our own life. Now verses 28 to 32 of Luke 14, you're still in Luke 14, kind of tells us two parables about counting the cost. And whatever those mean specifically, the general sense there is that you have to have enough to finish the tower or you have to have enough to win the war. And so if we're going to be disciples of Jesus Christ, we need enough of something we need enough something to be able to follow him when family or self want to pull us in a different direction. And so we kind of ask ourselves in that context, and we're not preaching this text right now, but we would ask ourselves enough what? Well, I think we might say enough conviction. We need enough conviction to be able to kind of pull through. I think we need enough love for Jesus Christ in order to kind of serve him and put him first. And again, Jesus concludes it all with verse 33, so therefore, 
any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And I think for, in large part, we've lost sight of this part of our message. So that we think so long as we've renounced some things, and so long as we maybe attend Sunday morning services when it works out for us, we're, we're just fine. Or, or you can kind of put in your own blanks. What, what do you think that Jesus requires? As long as I do this and this and this, I think we think we're just fine. And because we think that way, when a would-be disciple comes along and, and asks us, how do we obtain eternal life? We don't confront him or her with the cost of following Jesus Christ. And because of that, there are many false converts in the church. There's many who call Jesus Lord who don't actually take his lordship seriously. But instead of going away sorrowful like the rich young man does in our text, those people end up sticking around because they haven't been challenged with the cost of following Jesus Christ. And I think that's likely why Jesus said in Matthew 7.22, on that day, on the day of judgment, there's going to be many who will say to me, Lord, Lord, and he will declare to them in verse 23, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And so this text challenges us. I, I know it challenges me in a number of ways. And we need to heed what Matthew and Jesus teach us in this text. And today we're going to just cover, like I said, verses 22 or, or up to verse 22. And I set this up today so that we can kind of think of ourselves. We can kind of analyze ourselves and think about our own life. Now, often I outline a text like this. Maybe I would outline it according to the three questions and the three responses by Jesus. But today I, I want to, I want us to kind of really think about this for ourselves. And so I've kind of outlined this in a way that, that you can think about yourself. This is for you and this is for me to, to kind of examine ourselves this morning. We need to think about eternal life. I called this sermon The Way to Eternal Life. And what we're going to see is three steps to eternal life. Three steps to eternal life. And, and they're like three checkpoints. Three, three checkpoints that we have to get past on the way to true salvation. They can be a, a way for you to examine yourself, whether you're on the narrow way, whether you've entered in at the narrow gate. And so what we want to do this morning is we want to let Jesus evangelize us. We want to let Jesus lead us on the path to eternal life and to the kingdom and to salvation. And even if we're already on that good path, we need to hear these things again like Jesus' disciples did on that day when the young man came to him and asked in verse 16, Teacher, what good thing must I do to have eternal life? And so go back to Matthew chapter 19. The first thing that we're going to see, the first step to eternal life is know God as ultimate good. Know God as ultimate good in verses 16 and 17. And Jesus immediately points this man to God. Look at our text in verses 16 and 17 again. Behold, a young man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. 
Now, this man's question is really every evangelist's dream. He wants eternal life. He wants to know the way to salvation, and and he seems sincere in his request. He asks, what good thing must I do? What good thing must I do? And I, I don't think we're meant to necessarily fault him for asking about what he must do, as though he's trying to earn salvation by his works or as though that's kind of the main focus of his question. I think the main focus of his question is, how how do I get eternal life? Now, this kind of idea of a a works-based salvation was somewhat of the Jewish mindset. In fact, um, why don't we turn over to Romans chapter 9 and see it there a little bit. Go to Romans 9. If you look at verse 30, Paul says, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it was it were based on works. And so the Gentile sinners, they weren't pursuing righteousness. They were, they were living in their sin and they attained righteousness by faith. But Israel was trying to pursue their law. They didn't have faith. And because they didn't pursue it by faith, but as if it were by works, they missed out on the righteousness of God. And so we see there that they, their, their sense there was that they were trying to earn salvation apart from faith. They were trying to keep the law by their own works and efforts. And we see that again in chapter 10 and verse 2 of Romans. Paul says, Therefore I bear them witness, speaking about Israel again, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. And so the the Jews, the Israel in general, tried to establish their own righteousness and therefore they missed out on the righteousness of God that comes by faith in Jesus Christ. And so I think we're at least somewhat right to see something of a works-based approach in this man's question. But as we kind of follow the the text, notice that Jesus doesn't correct the man and and just say like, hey, this you know, you're trying to earn this by your own works. Jesus keeps the whole conversation on the level of what the man must do. And so he points him to the commandments in verse 17. And he actually gives him something to do in verse 21. He says, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. And in reality, we do need to do something to be saved. We do need to respond in some way. Now, it's God's grace that enables us to respond, but God doesn't respond for us. We must do that. And so we must come to Jesus Christ and we must trust him. That's our response. But before Jesus gets into anything that the man must do, he first of all, he gets him to think. And so we got to think a little bit here. This man wants to do something to have eternal life. 
but he hasn't thought about eternal life rightly yet. What is eternal life? I think that's a great question for us to even think about. What is eternal life? What are we even asking about when we say, you know, how can I have eternal life? Now, I think we tend to think about it as going to heaven when we die. But what is in heaven? Or better yet, who is in heaven? Save friends and relatives? Yeah. Angels are in heaven. Sure, they're there. But most importantly, God is there. God is there. So who is in heaven? What is eternal life? Now, eternal life is as much about a quality of life as it is about a duration. Eternal speaks to both. It's forever and it's also the highest life. It's the best life. And what is it that makes this eternal life good? And the answer to that is God. God is what makes eternal life good. In John 17 and verse 3, Jesus said, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And so eternal life is knowing God and knowing Christ. Or 1 John 5, 11 to 13, it says this, and this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life, eternal life, this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And so eternal life is a life of fellowship with Jesus Christ, God's Son, and it's a life of fellowship with God Himself. Eternal life is being in Him and knowing Him and enjoying Him. And it starts here. It starts on the earth when by grace through faith God puts us in Christ and Christ dwells in our hearts through faith. And it continues from that moment on and forever. When we receive that eternal life, it continues forever. Jesus says that he will raise us up on the last day. Eternal life culminates when we see Christ and dwell in heaven forever with him in the new heavens and the new earth. Now, when Jesus says in our text, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. He's getting this man to think about what he really wants. What is good? You want eternal life? Well, well let's, let's think about this. What is good? And, and I think there's two parts to this here. The first involves God himself. There is only one who is good. But the second involves then the good thing that this man would do, and, and that's God's will expressed in the commandments. Now, just, just stick with me here. We'll get back to the second one. But the first one is there is only one who is good. Jesus reminds the man that one is good, and, and he clearly means God here. No one else is good. Now, goodness is an attribute of God. Psalm 119, verse 68 says, You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. In Exodus 33, 19, God's goodness is his glory. Moses asks in verse 18, Show me your glory. And God replies, 
I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And so God's glory and His goodness and His name is really who He is. And He is this sovereign God who shows His goodness to who He will. He, he is gracious to whom He will be gracious, and He shows mercy on whom He will show mercy. He is sovereign in His exercise of His grace and His mercy. In Psalm 86 and verse 4, the psalmist says, Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. And Psalm 107 and verse 1 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And so God is good. He is absolute goodness, which means that all that we regard as good comes from him. All that we regard as good comes from him. He is supreme good. He is the fount of all good, the good of all goods. Augustine said that he alone is the good to be enjoyed. And this is what Jesus then begins to point this man to. You see, if we're going to have eternal life, we need to come to a place where we recognize God as the supreme good. Good is not in wealth. Good is not in comfort. Good is not in pleasure or in things or even in circumstances that we desire. Good is not getting our own way or really anything else in heaven or on earth. That is not good. Good is found in God alone. Again, He alone is the good to be enjoyed. And so the good to be enjoyed in heaven is God Himself. And, and we need to develop a taste for that now on earth if we would be disciples of Jesus Christ. In Psalm 16, David says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. I think that's a great thing that we need to say to the Lord. We need to take refuge in Him, find good in Him, and say to Him, I have no good apart from you. And then the, that psalm ends in verse 11 it says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And so by saying there is only one who is good, Jesus points this man to God who is to be enjoyed. But then also it, it begins to help this man recognize something else. And this kind of begins to move us into our second point. You see, he wants to do some good thing. He wants to do some good deed. And Jesus says there is only one who is good. In other words, your good deed is not truly good. There's only one who is good. And we need to know this as well. There is no good that we can do to earn God's favor. If anyone does anything good, then it must come from God who alone is good. Now, now turn with me here for a minute to uh, Psalm 53. Psalm 53. 
See, the, the idea here is God alone is good and therefore you are not good. God alone is good and therefore you are not good and therefore there is no good deed that you can do to merit eternal life. Psalm 53 verse 1 says, The fool says in his heart there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. Now, that might, you might think, well, that just applies to the fool. You know, that's how fools are. But look at verse 2. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. And here it is again. There is none who does good, not even one. There is none, according to God's word, who does good. It is impossible for sinful man to do any good that ultimately or fully pleases God. And so even if you could do some amazing good deed or some uh, series of good deeds, which of course we cannot, even if we could though, even if we could do some amazing series of good deeds, those good deeds would not make up for a single sin. Good deeds are not able to undo our sin. And so this man, he seems to want to merit or he wants to earn eternal life by some good deed. And Jesus then points him to God. And he says, only God is good. And therefore, only God can do good in the full sense of goodness. And God is the good of eternal life that we need. We need to know God as good. And, and we're going to see why as we continue. If, if we're going to follow Jesus Christ and do what he commands us in this text, then we need to recognize God as our only good. Jesus points this man then to the commandments. He says, you want to do good? Okay, well, if, if you want to do good, it's all laid out for you in the commandments. And so in verse 17, he says, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. And I called this second step, know yourself as a sinner. Because that's really what the commandments should do. That's what the law should do. It should show us our sin. And so know yourself as a sinner in verses 18 and 19. Number two in the outline. The second step here, know yourself as a sinner. Again, verse 17, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, the Jews had broken the commandments, the law, the Torah, into 613 commandments. And the man wanted to know which ones in particular Jesus had in mind. And Jesus takes him to the Ten Commandments. He leaves out the first four, which focus on God. The final six of the Ten Commandments focus on our relationship with others. And Jesus follows the order of Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy chapter 5. The sixth commandment is, you shall not murder. The seventh commandment, is you shall not commit adultery. The eighth commandment is you shall not steal. The ninth commandment is you shall not bear false witness. The tenth commandment Jesus leaves out for now, it's you shall not covet, which is more of an internal and, and less 
externally visible. And so Jesus seems to focus on the externally visible relational commandments. Even the, as far as the first three commandments on our, our love for and, and worship of God only, those are more internal things, less easy to see. But Jesus leaves out the 10th commandment, you shall not covet, although he kind of seems to come back to it a little bit later when he tells the man to sell what he possesses. And so Jesus lists the 6th through the ninth commandment, and then he goes back to the 5th commandment, which is a positive command. The other ones are you shall not. This one is honor your father and your mother. And again, these are the commandments that focus on our relationships with others. And then Jesus adds one more commandment from Leviticus 19.18, which says there, it says, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord, or I am Yahweh. Now Jesus quotes the last part of it in verse 19. He says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now this young man, he seems to have a typical view of these commandments. He didn't think of them as applying to his heart attitudes. For example, he didn't think do not murder meant do not be angry with your brother, as Jesus said in Matthew 5.21. He says in verse 20, all these things I have kept. What do I still lack? And you know, on, just to be kind of fair to the young man, I th Paul thought the same thing in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 6. He says, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. See, Paul also thought, at least while he was a Pharisee, he thought that he was blameless in regards to the righteousness of keeping the law. The young man didn't kill anyone. He didn't commit adultery. Apparently, he didn't steal anything. He didn't bear false witness against his neighbor. He probably thought of that just merely as, as being false witness in court. He honored his parents as best as, as he knew. As far as he was aware, he loved his neighbor as himself. Now, a question arises here, at least it, it does for me. Is Jesus saying that the way to life is by keeping the law? Is Jesus saying, if you keep all the commandments, you will enter life? And the answer to that is no. Salvation, even in the Old Testament, even under the Mosaic law, was always by faith. And the law taught Israel how they should live as God's people, but it was not a means for them to earn salvation. The law as a whole pointed forward with all of its sacrifices for sins to the coming Messiah high priest who would lay down his life for the forgiveness of sins. What Jesus is saying is, if you want to do good, it's all laid out for you in the commandments, go and do it. Now, I really like how R.T. France explained this in his commentary on Matthew. He said this, he said, quote, to keep God's commandments is a necessary condition for salvation. Jesus does not come to abolish the law and what God has declared still stands. And then he says, see on, on Matthew 5, 17 to 19. But Jesus does, does not say that it is also a sufficient condition that if you keep the commandments, you will enter into life. And the man's reply in verse 20 rightly looks for something more, which Jesus is happy to add in verse 21, end quote. 
Another commentator pointed out that even Paul, and we could think of Paul as the apostle of justification by faith alone, he said in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, very similarly to what Jesus is laying down here, he says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And so the way I think we need to understand this is that salvation will result in obedience. And if it doesn't bear that fruit, it isn't genuine salvation. Now again, we know that it's not, we're not talking about perfection here, but it, it, salvation results in a change of life. And Paul says, if, if you are unrighteous, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now Jesus doesn't say anything here about how the man should keep the commandments, he, just that he should. And I, I think we, if we wanted to fill in the how, I think we would have to say that that would be by faith by faith and trust in God. But what Jesus was getting at here seems to go even deeper than that. The the commandments were meant to show man his sinful state. The law, according to Paul in Galatians 3.24, the law was to be a tutor. The ESV translates it there in Galatians 3.24, so then the law was our guardian or our tutor until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. In 1 Timothy 9, 1 Timothy 1, 9 and 10, Paul says that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. The, the law is meant to show us our sin that we, and, and show us that we fall short of God's holy standard. And therefore, the law is meant to show us that we need forgiveness, that we need mercy. You see, the law is meant to show us that there is none who does good, not even one, to quote Psalm 53.3 again. Or again, what Jesus said in our text, There is only one who is good, and the law shows us that. And if we would have eternal life, we need to see our sin. Jesus' usual gospel message was repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in order to repent, in order to turn away from our sin, we need to first recognize that we are sinners, and that we have sin, and that we need God's mercy. But the young man, he doesn't see himself this way. Again, in verse 20, look what he says. the, The young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? And so he believes that he has kept the law, but he, but he still recognizes that something is missing. Something isn't right. And Jesus is going to bring it all together for him now. And this is the third step to eternal life. Number three, give up everything and follow Jesus Christ. And so we need to know God is good. We need to know ourselves as sinners. And then we need to give up everything and follow Jesus Christ. 
In verse 20, again, the young man said to him, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? Verse 21, Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Jesus had begun to show him that God is the ultimate good. And that he was therefore not good, but so far the rich young ruler hasn't really understood these things. Now we call him the rich young ruler, by the way, because all three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tell us that he was rich. Matthew in verse 20 calls him the young man. And I think again in verse 22. And Luke calls him a ruler, likely the ruler of a synagogue. But anyways, Jesus gets right to the heart of it all with this surprising command in verse 21. If you would, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor. Now, perfect here is the idea of maturity or the idea of completeness. And there's two parts to this, two parts to this command. Go sell and give. That's number one. And then secondly, come follow. And so go and sell and give, and then come and follow. Now, another question comes up right away for me anyways is, why does Jesus tell this man to sell what he possesses? You know, he hasn't told Andrew and Peter and James and John to sell everything. Matthew still seemed to have his house earlier in Matthew, and that's where Jesus kind of made his home base in Capernaum, we think. Remember, there was that party there with all the tax collectors and sinners. And so why does Jesus tell this man to sell it all? And and really, we can only speculate. The text doesn't actually say. Was it because Jesus knew his heart and saw his attachment to the world and wanted to show the man that he viewed his possessions as a good above God and that he was indeed guilty of breaking the 10th commandment, you shall not covet? Well, that's a possibility. Did Jesus want to challenge his commitment by asking him to do what he normally didn't require of others? Jesus often said that every disciple had to give up everything to follow him. But in practice, he didn't ask everyone, or as far as we know, he didn't ask anyone to sell everything. Remember Zacchaeus, another rich man, or Zacchaeus, however you pronounce it, Zacchaeus voluntarily gave away half of his possessions. And he offered a fourfold restitution to anyone he defrauded, but he did that voluntarily. Christianity doesn't require us to sell everything and live in monasteries with no possessions. And yet there's a sense in which we're to recognize that everything that we have actually belongs to God. And our whole lives, everything is to be surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, whatever the reason, Jesus asked this man, this particular man, to sell all his possessions. And it revealed that his possessions were an idol. His possessions were an idol. They were his good. In in a sense, we could even say they were his God. They were his master. And as much as he said, I want eternal life, he showed that, that he didn't really want it. He wanted eternal life, but at the same time, he wanted his possessions. He wanted to serve God and mammon. He wanted to serve God and 
money. Remember, mammon is the, the Aramaic word that means property and possessions and wealth. In fact, I want you to turn back to Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24. I quoted from it earlier, but look at Matthew 6, 24. Jesus says we, we cannot serve God and money. We cannot serve God and property, possessions, and wealth. Matthew 6, 24 says, No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, or literally, you cannot serve God and mammon, property, possessions, and wealth. And in that same context, Jesus said in, in verse 19 of chapter 6, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so Jesus offers this man a trade. He says, sell your possessions and have treasure in heaven. And he also offered him a place among the disciples. He said, come and follow me. He was going to be one of, maybe not one of the twelve, but one of the disciples who traveled with Jesus. That was an amazing offer that this man was given. Now when it comes to us and we think about how do we apply this to ourselves, there's a difficulty here for us. We are not necessarily called to sell everything in order to follow Jesus. But as we already saw earlier, we are called to renounce everything if we're going to follow Jesus. And if we don't do that, we cannot be his disciples. One commentator put it this way, and I think we really need to hear this as hard as it is to hear. He says, quote, that Jesus did not command all his followers to sell all their possessions gives comfort only to the kind of people to whom he would issue that command. Did you catch that? That Jesus didn't command all of his followers to sell all their possessions gives comfort only to the kind of people to whom he would issue that command. And I think we need to really look at our hearts and say, do I love Jesus Christ above all other goods? Do I love God above everything else? And am I willing to renounce it all, to forsake it all, if that's what he would have me do? If Jesus told you, sell everything, if he was here today and said, I want you to sell everything and give to the poor and come and follow me, would you do it? And what we're going to see next week, and I think this is true for us rich, is that it's only the grace of God that can make us willing for such a thing. Discipleship has a high cost, but we become willing to pay it when we recognize the three things that we looked at today by God's grace. First of all, God is our ultimate good. God is our ultimate good, not our things, not our family, not our friends, not any earthly comfort, not any pleasure in this world, only God himself. God is the ultimate good. And then secondly, we need to see ourselves as sinners. And we need to flee the wrath to come. I've been thinking about this a lot this week. We need to have a holy fear that grabs hold of Christ and doesn't look back. Just like, you know, in, in Sodom and Gomorrah as Lot leaves and the angels say, do not look back. We need to have that kind of a holy fear and recognize that 
that only a few are saved and that this whole world is under God's judgment and the only way of escape is through the Lord Jesus Christ and we're to grab hold of him and run with him and flee the wrath to come and get as far away from as possible from all of our sin and our worldliness and follow Jesus Christ. We need to recognize ourselves as sinners with only one hope of salvation. And then thirdly, we must give up everything and follow Jesus Christ. Acts 4.12 says, And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no under name, under heaven, given among men by which we must be saved. Now that rich young ruler, he could have left rejoicing in God. He could have left rejoicing in God's beloved Son, Jesus Christ. But instead, in our text in verse 22, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And what we see then is that his possessions owned him rather than him owning his possessions. And his bondage to his possessions made him sad. And he would not give them up They made him sad. What about you? Again, are you willing to give up everything to follow Jesus Christ? And again, as we think about that, we recognize that it's only the grace of God that can help us to see things that way. But that's an important question for us to ask. Are you willing to give up everything to follow Jesus Christ? Do you know these three steps to salvation? And are they true in your life? Is God your good Have you seen yourself as a sinner and have you turned away from that sin to follow and trust and live for Jesus Christ as a disciple of His? That is the way to eternal life. Let's pray. Well, Father, thank You for the the challenge of this text. And we pray now that, that You would help us to do these things. Help us to follow You. Give us enough of whatever it is, whether it's conviction or love for Christ, that we would be willing to renounce all and follow him. And we pray for those of us who are on this path, we need your help, Father. Help us to live this way. Help us to live for you and for Jesus Christ in this sinful and distracting world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, please stand now. We're going to sing in response.